The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In a way, what is sad about the situation is that the protests and the repression, the geography of violence, let's say, is mapping onto the voting geography that has shaped Peruvian politics for decades now. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 2nd, 2023. Since December, Peru has been in the midst of a protracted political crisis. Following a failed coup in early December, President Pedro Castillo was arrested, becoming the fifth president to leave office in Peru in five years. In the midst of protests, Castillo's deputy, Dina Boluarte, took power. But protests have continued in the following months, with roughly 60 people dead mostly protesters killed by the police and the military, as the Peruvian government takes an increasingly authoritarian turn. After Castillo's departure from office in December, we published a podcast conversation with Rodrigo Barranachea, a 2022-2023 Santo Domingo visiting scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University, and an assistant professor at the Departamento de Ciencias Sociales of the Universidad Católica de Uruguay. With the violence and unrest continuing to unfold, I asked Rodrigo back on the podcast for an update on where things stand in Peru. He explained why he thinks that Peru may no longer be fairly described as a democracy, and why it's hard to see an end to this crisis anytime soon. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 2nd. Is Peru still a democracy? Rodrigo, you last came on the show in late December. At that point, Peru's President Pedro Castillo had been out of office for several weeks following his arrest after a failed coup attempt. Uh, Following his departure, the country experienced a wave of protests that I think were really just beginning when we spoke. Um, And a number of protesters died after violence from the military and the police. What's happened in the intervening two months uh, since you last came on the show? I know that's kind of like asking you to summarize an enormous amount of information, but if you could just give us a brief overview. Okay. Uh, Well, we can start with what's happened with protests. So since we talked, there was at first an increasing number of protests, and now we are, I think, going down in the frequency and uh, the territorial reach of protests. 
And the most important motivation for mobilization in these few months has been, I would say, the government response mm -hmm. to mobilizations. So Dina Boluarte, as we discussed last time we spoke, she is a political amateur without any linkages to the party, uh, to Peru Libre, or to any kind of grounded organization, right? And we know now that this is a feature of Peruvian politics. Most presidents are very uprooted, let's say. But in her case, this was even more noticeable because she was not supported by the left who saw her as a traitor to Castillo. And she was also mistrusted by or distrusted by the right because of her origins, her political origins. So without any kind of popular support or political support, what Boluarte did was to resort plainly and simply uh, to repression. So the narrative that the government developed to explain and to produce a coalition, a support coalition for the government, is basically a combination of discourses that are a legacy from, from the 80s and the 90s, the time in which Peru was fighting uh, the Sendero Luminoso, the guerrilla movement that engaged in like lots of terrorist activities and, and, and actions back then. And they combined that with a set of conspiracy theories about networks of international support that were mobilizing people in the country. So the result of that was a discourse that basically said that people on the streets were either being mobilized or being deceived by terrorist organizations that were trying to take over power. And they were also being deceived or supported by governments like the one in Venezuela or Evo Morales in Bolivia. And that's what basically explained what we were seeing. So people, of course, didn't take this well. I think I used this concept last time we spoke. Uh, Peruvians have this word called terruqueo, which is a word to refer to the practice of calling other people's terrorists based on, on the notion that uh, they belong to, to some sort of terrorist organization because of their beliefs or because of what they do, right? So people didn't take this well, and it kind of fueled mobilizations even further, particularly in the south highlands of the country, which is where Castillo had the most support and where traditionally anti-establishment sentiments and anti-Lima and leftist sentiments are most pronounced. The government responded to this mo mobilization that, as I was saying, was in part triggered by their own discourse with more repression, which has caused dozens of 
deaths. And that kind of generated like a spiral of violence, triggering more mobilization, which triggered more, which triggered more violence, and so on and so forth. And that has only started to decline a couple of weeks ago. And at the moment, mobilizations are restarting. Uh, but for the moment, they seem to be more localized in specific regions, particularly in Puno, where many people died during the wave of mobilization and later repression by the government. So that's where we are right now in terms of mobilization, I would say. Yeah, that's really helpful context. So before we dig into some of the details there, I want to do a little bit of stage setting about why all this is so important. And I, I want to point to a, a tweet that you made in early February saying essentially that Peru isn't really a democracy anymore, but it's also not run by a dictatorship. That's a pretty dramatic statement. <laughs> and <laughs> I want to ask you what you mean by that. First, why Peru isn't a democracy anymore and why you don't think it's governed by authoritarian rule either. Okay, so there are two ways in which you can claim that Peru, it's not, I, I don't want to say it's not a, a democracy exactly. It's not being replaced. I, I, I don't, I mean, it's not a different kind of regime. We have not replaced democracy with a different kind of regime. But we are going through a authoritarian episode, in my opinion, for sure. Why? Because of the level of violence and um, the unaccountability by authorities. As a, as a result of the of this violence, I mean, the number of people that have been killed in the protests is not something you see normally in a democracy without serious consequences, right? And that's about sixty people who have been killed, or more by this point. It's about sixty people that have been killed, both as a result of the protests and as a result of the repression. I think. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it's around 48 that some organizations calculate they have been killed as a result of repression directly. Okay, so that level, uh, that death toll, death toll, I don't think is normal in a democracy without some sort of accountability, right? And in Peru, the prime minister who previously was the Minister of Defense, it's still in his post. In his post. Furthermore, President Boluarte has say, said in more than one occasion that she supports the actions of the police and the military. She at some point even claimed that the military uh, or the police were doing an impeccable job when we knew that there were already people dying in the protests. And there are numerous reports and, and video reports of some of these deaths in which we can see that people were not being a direct threat to either the police or the military when they were killed, right? So the government has unleashed a level of violence against civilians that is too high for a democracy and particularly too high for a democracy without accountability, 
without any consequence for the level of violence, right? Uh, so that's one way in which you can claim, okay, this is out of the, out of democratic bounds. This belongs more to the area of authoritarianism. Nevertheless, it is not a regime. It is not a regime because a regime has certain rules in place and it has certain stability or prospects of stability over time. And I don't think that's it. that is something this government has, right? Uh, Boluarte can, at best for her, stay in power until 2026, but no longer than that, right? And once he she falls, this coalition is so fragile, really, that I don't think it will necessarily be able to reproduce itself in a new government. Although they are certainly trying, and let's say the capacity of the coalition supporting Boluarte to move the country towards authoritarianism is much higher. Their capacity is much higher than the one that supported Castillo by far. And why is that? Because they have more power. It's a coalition that is that encompasses part of de facto powers in the country. De facto powers are very important everywhere, but also particularly in regions like Latin America, where political institutions are not that strong to bind individuals' behavior and the politicians' behavior. So what ends up shaping what happens in the political arena is more like raw power rather than institutions, right? When we talked last time, at some point you told me that, you know, certain views of what had happened in Peru, meaning Castillo being removed swiftly after this coup attempt, was being read internationally as, oh, this country has strong institutions, right? I don't think anyone can think that is true right now. And I told you back then that I was thinking that that was a that I thought there was a misinterpretation of what was happening in Peru, and that the, a more correct interpretation, in my view, was that Castillo and his coalition were simply too weak to to perform this power grab successfully. Right? Okay. So part of the reason why we are in these deeper, although not necessarily more durable, authoritarian episode right now in Peru, has to do with the support of the repressive apparatus, meaning the armed forces and the police, who have traditionally leaned, let's say, right, or have had a narrative that has had the left as enemies or potential enemies, which is a consequence or a legacy of the 80s and 90s in the country. So. This coalition has the support of that part of, of, the, of the state, the repressive apparatus, but it also has the support of the media, most of the media. Hmm? And there is seems to be a very conscious decision by 
the most important media outlets not to publicize abuses are not to and not to investigate them too much. There have been reports of censorship within news media outlets on this uh, regard. So just with those two pieces, with repression and with the media, you have very strong allies that Castillo did not have. You have the capacity to repress and you have the capacity to some extent to shape the narrative about what's happening. The media are not very credible or very trusted among large segments of the population, but nevertheless, it's, uh, let's say, better to have them than not to have them if you are putting together a coalition to support you. So let's talk about who makes up those coalitions. And I guess before we get into that, you should say, you know, this is not a situation where it's a, a, you know, a small group of protesters who don't have majority support. I think the last uh, numbers that I saw indicated that um, over 70% of Peruvians said that they believed that Boluarte should resign um, and almost 60% identified with the protest. So this is really, it's a movement with very broad popular support. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of the demographics of and of who is making up the the protesters and the people who support the protesters as opposed to this much smaller coalition that you say includes sort of stronger institutional forces who are backing Boluarte's government. Yeah. So the sectors that are actively mobilizing are mainly right now at this point located in the south highlands of the country and if you remember, or your listeners remember, the first time with this, we talk about Peru, I said that the South and the Highlands are where the poorest, most indigenous, most rural uh, part of the uh, Peruvian population uh, lives, right? That part of the country was the one that identified with Castillo the most. And that is the part that is more actively mobilized right now. At this point, I don't think because Castillo or because they want Castillo restituted to the presidency, some of them, of course, do. But I think at this point is a mobilization in rejection and indignation of the way the government has treated them during the first wave of protest and repression. Hmm? Then let's say that the less active or or passive coalition of support for protests that you are referring to, that large segment of the population that supports protests or identifies with them, are people who are united mostly by the idea that Boluarte should resign and Congress should call for new elections, both of which, and we can talk about this later, both of which seem to be like both Boluarte, she seems to be canceling that position, that, that possibility of resigning, and Congress seems to be pushing this indefinitely. So that large segment of the population is more, more important or larger again in the South and in, uh, let's say lower socioeconomic strata. But in general, it's very large and it's majoritarian, right? The sector that more, more fiercely 
opposes the protests and that advances the narrative of terrorism and international influence and so on, let's say the active counter-protesters are more localized in Lima to a lesser extent in the north and uh, northern coast area of the country too. And Lima and the northern coastal area are typically the areas that tend to vote more right from center in Peru, right? For example, that is the sector of the population that tended to vote more for Keiko Fujimori in 2016. Still, the people that are very active in advancing this narrative, it's a very small percentage of the population. And the ones who support that narrative, as you can uh, tell by surveys, are relatively small too. Nevertheless, I would say they are overrepresented in the media narrative, the mainstream media narrative, because they, like Peru is a very centralized country, and most of the media outlets that have a national reach, they are located in Lima and they are conducted by the segments of the population that more fiercely opposed Castillo. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, part of the argument about why this is Peru sort of moving away from democracy or having an authoritarian episode, as you put it, is that there is a comparatively small group of the population and interest groups that are sort of in control of a government that has not very much legitimacy because of the way that Boluarte came into office and how she's governed versus uh, a small group of protesters who nevertheless have support from a broad segment of the population. And so it's really a kind of a story about minoritarian rule at this point. Is that fair? To some extent, but you have to remember that when Castillo was ruling, it was also minoritarian rule. Uh, because the problem is that, as I said before, when, when we first talked, in Peru, no actor is significantly strong to impose, like to, to produce like an hegemony, Right. Uh, every political actor, every political organization is very weak. The only difference now is that this group that is uh, in power right now has the support of very, let's say, strategic actors, right? With significant power. But in terms of numbers, in, ter- in terms of organization, every group ruling Peru for the last few years, have been minoritarian. Uh, in terms of public support, no, no government has been popular since perhaps Vizcarra. Vizcarra was the last popular president. So I get your point about minority rule. I know what you mean, uh, but I uh, don't want to create the notion that there is an alternative group that is majoritarian, that has great support and that could be taking a government, for example, in new elections. The only group that is large and majoritarian in Peru is the one that rejects politics and politicians. But that's not a base for a government coalition. It's just 
the base for an anti-government coalition. Yes? Right, absolutely. No, and thank you for correcting me on that. And for, for listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Vizcarra was president uh, from, I believe, 2018 to 2020. So it's been a while <laughs> since there, there's there been a, a president with popular support. I mean, I know I've seen polls of potential candidates uh, in a general election, and the vast majority of people say that they would support either nobody or they don't know. <laughs> I wonder exactly. if, if, yeah, if you could talk a little bit more about that and the extent to which the absence of an alternative has been driving uh, both the unrest and the sort of inability to move forward. Um, is that part of why people would are calling for uh, rewriting the constitution as well as new elections? This is interesting because, indeed, Peru's politics has always been fragmented, or it has been fragmented for decades now. However, we are reaching new levels of fragmentation. As you say, polls show that if you're asking people, you know, who would you vote for if the new election would be called for, the leading candidate has less than 5% of responses, right? So that's that's tremendous. But it's also, it's only like the deepest point in a tendency that Peru has been for a long time and that is at the root, to some extent, of why this is in, very difficult to solve the current, um, let's say, crisis. So Congress is supposed to, or they are able to, if they want, to call for new elections, for early elections. And when people abroad see that 70 or 80% of the population supports early elections, and then they see that people in Congress do not support it, it's kind of puzzling because we tend to think that politicians actually want to do what people want so that they become popular and then they have more chances to be elected, right? That seems to be the way politics in a democratic setting or where there are elections work. But precisely because of the level of fragmentation that you just mentioned, politics in Peru has become a lottery, right? It's impossible for people, for parties, and for more than parties, individuals in Congress to know if they have a chance of being re-elected. Let's leave aside the fact that re-election is actually forbidden by law in Peru. <laughs> but even if it wasn't, the level of volatility, fragmentation, the extent to which people fragment their vote and they are looking for new alternatives every single time makes politicians' calculations very oriented towards the short term, yes? So if you are in Congress because of a lottery instead of because you are part of an organization that has stable support from a segment of the population, and in, like once you're in office, people are pushing for new elections, you have no incentive to make that possible, to make new elections possible. Because it's basically like giving away the price of the lottery. And nobody gives away the price of the lottery. So 
politicians have all the incentives to cling to power and to take as many or make as many as many gains as possible, short-term gains as possible while they are on power and they have no incentive to pay attention to what people desire because that people no longer has any control over them. Most likely, they would never vote for them again. So what do you have to lose by clinging to power and refusing to listen to the people? That's part of what makes a solution to this problem very difficult. Politicians in Peru no longer have incentives to represent people. They didn't before when they learned that Peruvian voters fragmented the vote and sought new alternatives every time. And they have even less incentive now after Vizcarra, who we just mentioned a few moments ago, passed a, like, approved via referendum a reform to make re-election for Congress impossible. So there is a huge divide between politicians and voters. And it's, it's a divide that is very hard to bridge. Whatever is in the interest of politicians is not in the interest of voters and vice versa. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. 
Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once, because the information will get back into the systems. It does it, and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports, and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. And so where are we on the protesters' demands for new elections? If you could just set out sort of how, how that conversation has and hasn't moved. When is the next upcoming election? So at the very beginning of this discussion, when they were starting to discuss early elections, both the left and the right opposed new elections. The right opposed new elections because within their narrative of 
terrorists mobilizing the streets and so on and so forth, calling for new elections meant conceding to these terrorists or international organizations that were supporting protests. So they were willing to, let's say, repress and continue repressing until order is restored instead of pushing for new elections. And from the left, the left saw protests as an opportunity that they would probably not have without this specific specific conjuncture we're, we're living through to push for a constituent assembly. So they were calling, they were blocking votes in Congress for new elections unless that vote included also a referendum for people to say if they wanted or not a constituent assembly to be called for. So both the left and right blocked that process. And as protests start to diminish, the left side of this coalition against um, new elections, let's say, conceded and they, they, they said that they were going to drop this demand for a new constituent assembly. However, they never marshaled enough votes for Congress to approve early elections. And this is for the, like the reason behind that is it's what I'm what I'm what I was telling you a moment ago. Politicians do not respond to parties. Politicians do not respond to voters. And for the most part, they are there because of not pure luck, but almost pure luck. Many of the Congress members right there could have not imagined winning that position maybe a month before the election. So now they have no incentive to let it go. And so when when is the upcoming election going to be held? I, I think I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, because you say there's now the re-election, uh, immediate re-election is is prohibited. If you have a sense of how that next election is going to affect the political crisis, given that, as you say, you know, the current crop of folks aren't going to be there anymore once that takes place. Mm-hmm. So if nothing moves, if there is no call for early elections by Congress, or if Boluarte does not resign, the new elections would be held in 2026. And it seems like that is the ultimate goal from both Congress and the president at this point. I mean, Boluarte and the prime minister, they are, they also have no incentive to let go of power because probably if they do, they're going to face some investigations for the deaths during the protests. So she has no incentive to let go of power. Congress have no, has no incentive either. And unless protests pick up again to a level that like that for politicians increases the cost of staying in power much higher, I don't think that intention by Congress and pres- the president of pushing this to 2026 will change. And at this point, the the hopes for constituent assembly are pretty much dead in the water. Interestingly, the 
hopes like the, the the percentage of the population that supports a constituent assembly or a new constitution are higher than ever before in Peruvian history. This has been historically a demand of the left, and it's a result of the let's say demonstration effect that constituent uh, of, of uh, constituent assemblies had in the Andes in the 2000s. Particularly, the experience of Chavez was very motivating, let's say, for a significant share of the left in Latin America and of Peru as well. However, in terms of the larger population, this was always a minoritarian demand, let's say. However, as I was saying, right now, depends on how you measure support that level of support fluctuates between, let's say, 30 plus percent and 60 percent. Depends on if you're asking about a constituent assembly or you want a new constitution. Hmm? In any case, it's much higher than ever before. And I think it's in part the result precisely of the level of repression that the government has pushed and the need of people or the feeling by people that we need to reset the system, right? Most people, of course, are not entirely aware about the details of what it of what a constituent assembly entails, and they don't have to be. This is something extraordinary that that's out of the mind mind of uh, the average voter and the average Peruvian. But it's it has become, I think, kind of like a cognitive shortcut or a symbol of resetting the political system. And insofar as that is true, support for a constituent assembly has gone up. Nevertheless, once you ask people about what they want in a constituent assembly, most of what people have in mind are not really initiatives associated with the left. They are more conservative and traditionalist, let's say, initiatives uh, more than any anything else. So paradoxically, in terms of, you know, the kind of demands that people would uh, have right now uh, for a constituent assembly, it should be the right that is the most, that would be the most enthusiastic about a constituent assembly and not the left. But, you know, this is uh, how politics works sometimes. And so any demand for a constituent assembly or a new constitution, would that have to go through Congress and therefore would be blocked by the Congress? Or is there any hope of it going forward despite that opposition from sort of the, the folks who are currently in power? So there has been a long discussion from the legal perspective in Peru about how would you call a, for, a, for a constituent assembly? And there's a discussion of, uh, of, yes, like we would need to reform the constitution first, and that would mean we this needs to go through Congress such that the constitution includes the possibility of a constituted assembly, right? But what this legal perspective misses is that constituted assemblies are usually the way in which politics and society tries to create a new social contract after the old one collapsed and living together has become unsustainable unless there is a new arrangement, 
right? So if there would be a new constituent assembly, it would happen whether the constitution allows for it or not, because it would be the result of a pact among elites and different sectors of society, right? To, to, to push it forward. However, there is no, at this point, there is no critical mass or the crisis is not deep enough for broad sectors of society to feel like the social pact is entirely broken, right? Or the order is, the, the current order is unsustainable for everybody. So you'd mentioned earlier that it seemed like the protests have peaked perhaps and that there's been a decrease in the frequency and in the geographic reach. Can you talk about that a little bit more? And I'm curious if you have any sense of why that is, because it seems like, you know, the demands of the protesters have not been met. Are people sort of getting tired and going home? I think um, the peak of protests happened when the government both started to repress indiscriminately in the south part of the country, but also when parts of the of these groups came to the capital city, and uh, some groups and actors that were not mobilized until then in the capital city started to mobilize. The government acted very stupidly, for lack of another word, uh, in the way they they repressed. They made this huge shows of force that and ended up angering population they used a like kind of like a an assault vehicle to enter the the oldest university in the country because there were some protests sleeping inside and that kind of like broadened the coalition of support or, or the coalition of the people that were mobilized against the government but again the demands and the platforms were very uh, different, the only thing that brought them together was the rejection of Boluarte's administration, right? It was this anti-government or uh, negative uh, coalition or negative sentiments uh, that brought them together. So after a while, I think, yes, part of that broad coalition started to wear down. Uh, negative identities or coalitions that are brought together by the rejection of something are really hard to glue together or to keep together over time unless this enemy keeps you know putting it together or, or or motivating people to mobilize against it and over time particularly the most uh let's say middle class and Lima sectors of that coalition started to demobilize and the ones that remained mobilized were the ones that were repressed with the most violence. The ones in the south, particularly in Puno, Apurimac, Ayacucho, again, the most, the southern, the most indigenous, the poorest sectors of society. And those sectors traditionally have not had linkages, organizationally speaking, to uh, Lima. They used to, back in the 80s, when there was a network of organizations and parties tied together 
around this leftist coalition called Izquierda Unida. But when that fell apart in the 90s, this divide between the coast and the highlands in the south became even more pronounced. So let's say the anti-establishment or anti-status quo coalition is very hard to keep together at this point territorially. And, and that's being manifested now in protests where it's mostly these regions that I mentioned before that are being mobilized and not much more. As we speak, there is a large uh, group of people coming to Lima from Puno, one of the regions that was hit the hardest by the repression. And as I was saying, I think part of what motivates them is this indignation of, of the way people and the government has treated them. But, you know, that's not motivating a lot of mobilized support from the capital yet. So in a way, what is sad about the situation is that the protests and the repression, the geography of violence, let's say, is mapping onto the voting geography that has shaped Peruvian politics for decades now, in which the Southern Highlands vote to modify the status quo, to kind of shake institutions up, electing populists or leaders with inflammatory discourses, and the coast and Lima vote for the most conservative options. That cleavage that's usually manifested through votes is now being manifested by protests and bullets. So I don't want to ask you to predict the future, especially when the situation is so uncertain, but it does seem like you've sketched out a situation that is both kind of untenable, and yet, as you've said, there's also no obvious path forward. So would you expect that Peru will just kind of continue in this strange limbo of protest without change? I mean, what what are you looking for going forward? Okay, so two things, one in the realm of protests and one in the realm of institutions. In the realm of protest, social protest and collective action is one of the hardest things to predict in social sciences, in part because in many cases is triggered by emotions, particularly anger. However, people get tired. So the, to what extent those two cancel each other out, we don't know. Uh, the government could take actions that anger people further and re reactivate protests. And we have seen the government done this before many times. And the president in particular, she has a very inflammatory discourse, let's say, that has, has the capacity to fuel protests even further. So if protests escalate, I would say, it will be mostly because of the repression and the political ineptitude of the government, rather than because suddenly society starts to organize in higher levels that we have not seen before, right? Uh, so the chances for intense mobilization are determined more by explosions of anger rather than by sustained 
and growing mobilization by an existing network of activists or protesters. At the national level, I mean, of course. At the regional level, there are organizations that did not escalate further. At the institutional level, what we are starting to see is that Congress is starting to accumulate power vis-a-vis the presidency and other branches of power, including the judiciary. Uh, There have been some rulings from the Constitutional Tribunal recently, which in Peru kind of like plays the role of the Supreme Court in the U.S., that has granted Congress more power to oversee other institutions and to elect public officials for these institutions. And um, this has kind of given Congress permission to advance further with their intentions to accumulate power and perhaps secure a way of preventing what they consider a leftist threat from coming back to power. There are certainly many actors in Congress that are moving in that direction. They have not been successful yet, but we will see if they are part of this narrative of international actors and terrorist actors from the left conducting protests has has led them to push for this agenda to cancel the leftist party's uh, registration so that they cannot run for Congress or public office and, and so on and so forth. So there is there's a tendency towards that. However, this is not, again, an organized authoritarian regime from the top. It's different actors and different small coalitions in Congress, in presidency, and so on and so forth, kind of fighting for survival and trying to block other actors' capacity to contest their power in that process. So last time I told you that Peru was a democracy by default, right? And recently I was talking to a colleague, Eduardo Tarjant, and he said that perhaps we were transitioning to something like authoritarianism by default, uh, meaning a state in which these different actors, fragmented, not centralized, fight to keep their enemies at bay and to remove them or prevent them from contesting power, and a society so weak that is unable to prevent these power grabs. However you want to label it, what we are seeing is a further erosion of democratic institutions in Peru. We are at our lowest point in those terms since return to democracy in 2001. So things are not looking good, and um, I think they might get worse, at the institutional level, at least. All right. On that bleak note, let's leave it there. Uh, Rodrigo, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Quinta. A pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter 
at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.